We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Rage of Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show, the show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. My name is Caleb Hegg, and sitting with me is a whole group of people from Torah Resource and Torah Resource Institute. We are sitting in the San Antonio airport in a uh, Mexican restaurant currently, and uh, since we aren't going to have time to be able to record the Rob and Caleb Show, we decided that we would do a little uh, something different, and we're going to play the uh, the... It, uh, the lectures that were given by Tim Haig and Rob Vanhoff at the Society of Biblical Literature this year, and we're going to play those for you. Um, and uh, but before we do that, we want to uh, pass the mic over to one of our students. Uh, one of our students at Torah Resource Institute was able to attend the Society of Biblical Literature this year, and so we're going to pass the mic over to Dennis. We're going to ask Dennis his, his impressions because we hope that next year we will have even more students from. Uh, Torah Resource Institute that will represent the school uh, at the Society of Biblical Literature since it is a uh, society at a meeting where uh, top scholars are able to come and give and give their, their thoughts. So Dennis, tell me what you thought about the Society of Biblical Literature this year. My first impressions are that I am so blessed to be with these guys that I think all of the Torah Resource students should plan on attending next year. We could have a bus load. We could have a plane load. Whatever we, whatever we can get together. If you're a student at Torah Resource, you know what good theology, what good teaching these guys produce. I have been a supporter of Torah Resources for, from the beginning. Torah Resource, and I encourage all the students to seek out ways to get here. I also encourage you to seek out people that you know that might be interested in Torah resources. We need to get the word out. We need to honor these men that devote their lives to come to this ETS and biblical society and do so much work to glorify our God and our King Yeshua the Messiah. So Dennis, tell me, tell me this. Tell me, uh, give me one impression, uh, one, one thing that really sticks with you about uh, the Society of Biblical Literature, maybe a lecture that you saw, an interaction that you had, something in the book display, or a scholar that you might have met, or uh, even just your favorite lecture that you saw. T tell me something that, that you took away from this this year's SBL. Well, first of all, I was really interested in the Accordance booth with Tim Haig and Gary Springer. Uh, they're almost all day, every day. I got some new programs and I was encouraged by how much participation they had in it. Uh, the second thing I, I have to say is that there's so many varied teachers. You can just find about any kind of uh, teaching that you want to listen to. 
some good, some bad. But I think having our teachers here, uh, it's going to only improve things in the future. I see a, a shift coming in the world for, for a, a belief in Yeshua and the Torah. And I think this is uh, essential for us to have these men here and do their work. And I encourage you to get involved and reach out to everyone you can find to become students at Torah Resource. Perfect. All right. So now we're going to turn it over to my father, Tim Haig. We're going to listen to his lecture first. And uh, he's going to describe a couple of words that he uses. The, the, uh, the section that both Rob and uh, my father uh, spoken is the, Maser the Masoretic text section, which talks about uh, the rabbinical markings within the, within the uh, scribal uh, writings of the Tanakh, the copying of the Tanakh. So I'm going to pass the mic over to my father, and he's going to describe some of the words that you might not be familiar with that he's going to use in his paper. Okay, my paper was in the section of the, uh, that was highlighting the Masora. The Masora is, are the notes that were collected by the scribes and appended to the Hebrew text. And these notes generally speak about uh, specifics of the text to make sure that it is copied correctly. However, there are what is called the Tikkunay Sofrim. Tikkun means to correct or an emendation of the scribes. Some would say there are 18, others that there are 21. The question is, are these uh, relating to the text or were they added by the rabbis for specific theological reasons? As you will see in the, the paper that I wrote and presented at the SBL, I have come to the conclusion that the Tikkun in eight, Genesis 18.22, which changed the order of the words, was motivated by theological or polemical, that is, an argument uh, to be made against the Christians who were using that same text to prove that Yeshua came and saw Abraham, that is, he was God in the flesh. So I hope that uh, even though it's a very technical paper, that it might be of interest to you. So we hope you enjoy this paper by Tim Haig, presented at the 2016 San Antonio Society of Biblical Literature. I teach a course in the introduction to the Masora, so we only get a very uh, brief overview. And uh, we studied a bit on the Tukune Sofrim, and so I actually put this together for my students. It's much more than what we can go over here, so I will be going through it more quickly, uh, hopefully. Uh, the purpose of this paper is to make an inquiry into the Tikkun Sofrim at Genesis 18.22, <clears throat> which is registered in the later lists of the Tikkun Sofrim. Included in this investigation will be first a brief discussion of the two prominent terms used in the rabbinic lists when speaking of textual emendations, that is the Kinah Haktuv, and Tikkun Sofrim. Secondly, a survey of the textual witnesses to Genesis 18.22. Uh, thirdly, a survey of the rabbinic midrashim, which either note the Tikkun of Genesis 18.22 or offer interpretive information surrounding Genesis 18.22. And finally, a survey of the polemical and or theological use of Genesis 18-19 through 19 by the Church Fathers as a possible background or impetus for the Tikkun of Genesis 18.22. Now, the two terms which I'm sure that most of you are familiar with, um, and I'm skipping now to the third uh, paragraph on the first page underneath Tikkun, uh, tikkun Sofrim. 
These two formulas are kinah ketuv, which means apparently the scripture employ a euphemism, and the tikkun sofrim, the correction of the scribes. The formula kinah ketuv is found in the list of Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael on Exodus 15, 7 through 8, in Sifrei on Numbers 10.35, and in Okala of Okala, uh, list 168. Other lists <coughs> utilizing the formula, Kina HaKetuv, are found in the Yalchut Shemioni and the Sifra Zuta. The formula, Tikkun Sofrim, appears first in the Tankuma on Exodus 15.7-8. Now, <coughs> skipping to the bottom of that page, the date of the Tankuma Yomidenu collection of Midrashim is, of course, debated, like most everything. Uh, early scholars made conflicting statements about the date and so forth. Now, if you go to the next page, I was uh, uh, grateful for uh, Carmel McCarthy's uh, doctoral dissertation, and uh, she puts the terminus ad quo of this Tankuma Midrashim at around 800 of the Common Era. Bregman, however, says the Tanchuma Yomadenu literature is best regarded as particularly Midrashic genre, which began to crystallize toward the end of the Byzantine period in Palestine, 5 to 7th century of the Common Era. Uh, Strachan Stemberger also date the Tanchuma Yomadenu collection as originating in the 5th to 7th century CE. Hirschman puts the origin of some of the Agadic Midrashim in the 5th century CE and considers the Midrash Yomadenu most likely to have originated in the 6th century of the Common Era, with Tankuma being somewhat later. So the general dating of the Tankuma Yalamadenu Midrashim is important for our study, since Genesis 18.22 first appears as a Tikkun Sofrim in this collection and is absent from the lists of Sifrei and Mechilta. This in itself may suggest that incorporating Genesis 18.22 as one of the 18 so-called uh, canonical 18 Tikkunei Sofrim was a somewhat later decision driven by theological or midrashic criteria rather than based upon a textual tradition. And once incorporated as a tikkun sofrim in the Tantkuma Yalamadenu Midrashim, Genesis 18.22 continued to be listed among the tikkunei sofrim in some of the Masoretic lists. And the rest of this page, I give you some of the um, Masoretic uh, manuscripts that have the lists and where they're, where they're found. Now if we go to page three. And down just a bit from the brief survey, it can be seen that Genesis 18.22 is not found in the earliest lists of the Kinuyim, but that once it was included in the Tikkunei Sofrim of the Tankuma Yalamadenu collection, it continued to be listed as one of the 18 in some of the later Masoretic manuscripts. This would seem to open the possibility that Genesis 18.22 was not originally included among the Kinuyim, but was added later to the Tikkunei Sofrim list as one of the 18. This, in turn, may suggest that the impetus for its inclusion in the 18 Tikkunei Sofrim was midrashic rather than textual or critical. In the next section, I just look at what is obvious to us all. Um, uh, <clears throat> Dr. McCarthy includes the Qumran as a witness to the MT. Uh, however, uh, I, I would imagine that there was not availability to her when she wrote her dissertation. The scrap is really not uh, legible. Only the, the, only the term lifne, uh, the following letter, is really not, we, we can't tell. So we don't know if the following letter is a yod or if it's an, a, an olive. And uh, that would make all the difference. Uh, so uh, we, we have to more or less discount uh, any 
uh, help from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Of course, the Septuagint on the next page, Samaritan Pentateuch, Syriac Peshitta, even Targum Onkelos, as well as the Vulgate, and I, I'm sorry I didn't include here the, the Old Latin also, uh, have not what the uh, lists say was the original, but what the lists say was the tikkun. So there's no evidence. Um, so the summary is, on page 5, the summary of the evidence. While we cannot be certain of the reading that existed in the Dead Sea Scrolls, since the small fragment continuing, containing uh, Genesis 18.22 is too poorly preserved, and by the way, I did uh, check with uh, uh, Martin, Dr. Martin Abeg on this, since he has access to better photographs than I do. Uh, it is clear that no extant pre-Masoretic witness offers any evidence that the original Hebrew of the final clause of Genesis 18.22 was, and yod heh vav -He remained standing before Avram. Likewise, all of the versions we have collated agree that the text, and uh, agree with the text that the original was Abraham remained standing before yod heh vav -He. And this, of course, is, is the uh, tikkun to change the subject to yod heh vav -He, uh, of standing rather than Avraham. These data, when combined with the previous discussion showing that Genesis 18.22 is not listed as a tikkun until the later, Tankuma Yalamadenu Midrashim, seem to offer a substantial evidence that the tikkun on Genesis 18.22 was not based upon a known textual critical issue, but was formulated out of Midrashic concerns. Now I'm going to skip through this uh, next part as well, but what I've collated for you are the... Uh, at least the majority of the Midrashic uh, notes uh, or texts that include this, uh, this text. For instance, in Midrash Rabbah Brashit, or Genesis, Abraham uh, is complaining, not complaining, but saying, before I was circumcised, I had a lot of visitors. Now that I'm circumcised, what's going to happen? And uh, the Holy One says, before you were circumcised, uncircumcised mortals visited you. Now I, in my glory, will be revealed to you. Hence it is written, and the Lord appeared unto him, by the Oaks of Mamre, which is Genesis 18.1. The significant term here is glory. If you turn the page, page 6, you'll see that in the same Midrash, uh, Midrash Rabbah, Genesis 48.1, it's not glory, now it is, and he sat while the Shekinah stood, where you see the line underlined. So now it, it, uh, the Midrash is saying it's Shekinah. In 48.9 uh, of the same uh, Midrash Rabbah, Genesis, he says, but now it, it's the same uh, conversation. And uh, the Holy One says, But now I and my retina will appear to you. Thus it is written, And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing opposite him. He saw the Shekinah, and he saw the angels. At the bottom of the page. In this Midrash, Rabbi Levi makes it clear that the three men are three angels who disguise themselves in various ways, as Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel. And that Shekinah is distinct from the three, for the condition Abraham proposes is to see whether the Shekinah waits for them. The picture given in the Midrash is that the Shekinah appears first to Abraham, and then he saw the three men coming toward his tent. Okay? We go now to page 7. We see again in 49, uh, paragraph 7 of the uh, Midrash Rabbah, Rashid uh, or Genesis, that it, it talks about the Shekinah. So we have gone from glory and defined it clearly as Shekinah in the Midrash. At the bottom of the page, in the Midrash on Genesis 19.1, uh, well, I should read the underlined. Uh, uh, the, the question in the Midrash is, before they were called men, now they're called angels. What's going on here? 
In the Midrash on Genesis 19.1, the obvious issue that confronts the rabbis is that, the, that only two of the three men mentioned in 18.2 have left to go to Sodom, and here they are specifically called Malachim, Shneha Malachim. This would indicate that in the previous narrative, the statement of 18.22, then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, applied only to two of the three, with the third man remaining behind with Avraham and is the one conversing with him. But the Midrash on 19.1 is constructed in order to interpret the text in such a way so as to have all three of the men leaving Abraham to go to Sodom, and it was the Shekinah that remained behind and conversed with Abraham. Um, I give you the excerpts from Midrash Shemot and Midrash Tehillim, which uh, relates to this as well. On, uh, they relate to uh, Genesis 18.22 in a very Midrashic way, uh, trying to explain why the one uh, conversing with uh, Avraham was indeed Shekinah. So, a summary at the bottom of the page. Number one, in the Midrash Rabbah Genesis, the glory of God, that is the Shekinah, appeared to Abraham and is noted to be distinct from the three men who approach Avraham's tent. Now, turn the page to page nine. Number three at the, uh, the last sentence, what this Midrash seeks to establish is clear. All three went to Sodom, leaving Avraham and the incorporeal Shekinah to converse uh, uh, a dialogue which comprises verses 23 through 32 of the narrative of Genesis. And then finally, uh, summary five. In summary, it appears that the primary impetus of the Midrashim on Genesis 18 is to make a clear distinction between the three men or angels who approach the tent of Avraham and God himself, who appears to Avraham in his glory, that is, as the Shekinah, and thus entirely apart from any bodily form. Moreover, the appeal to the Tikkun Sofrim in verse 22 is necessary to maintain the distinction, for if the original text had the Shekinah still standing before Avraham, even though he was accompanying the, the men as they left to go toward Sodom, this would emphasize that the Shekinah is not bound by physical restraints, but is omnipresent, standing before Avraham wherever he might be. In the next section, I do a few remarks on the MT itself. <clears throat> the opening words of the narrative, Vayera uh, Elav Adonai, it says in 18.3, according to El, it has Abraham addressing one of the three men as Adonai, the plural form of Adon, written with the final chametz, always reserved as a plural of majesty and referring to yod Vavim. So that obviously is a question then, uh, was this known by the Midrashim? Top of page 10. We find that there is in our text in uh, 3, there, there is the, uh, the extra, uh, oh, excuse me, it notes that this term with uh, Adonai, with Chametz, is used 134 times in the Masorah Parva. Uh, the LXX takes it as a singular with the accompanying words, you, uh, but the, uh, and so does the Peshitta, but the Samaritan Pentateuch takes it as a plural, uh, pluralizing the uh, possessive suffixes on Benechem and Avdechem. So, I've given you a chart there on 19 that gives from verse 17 through 33 the use of Yod Vavhe throughout this narrative as well as the use of Adonai with Chametz. This, of course, was an issue that the rabbis needed to deal, deal with. But why? <laughs> That's where I'm going. On the next page, um, number three, in 18.9, the word 
Elav is marked in the uh, Masorah Ketona as one of the ten words with extra Nikud in the Torah. Now, in Midrash uh, Rabbah Genesis 48.15, this is noted. So it appears to me that, uh, at least in the final redaction of Midrash Rabbah uh, Brashit, they were aware of the Nikudot. They were aware of the, of the things that the Masoretes had done. They therefore would have fully been aware of the fact that Adonai with Kamates was referring to yod heh vav -Heh. And it's obvious in the text because yod heh vav -Heh uh, perhaps even Adonai, some would suggest, in one case at least, there are manuscripts that have Yodhe Vave, other manuscripts it's Adonai, as we see also in Qumran, with the interlinear uh, interchange of Yodhe Vave and, uh, and Adonai at times. I, I, I've at least found a few. Given the fact, uh, now I'm uh, just below the quote on page 11, given the fact that Rabbi Shimon ben Eliezer knew of the Nikud on uh, Elav in Genesis 18.9, there is every possibility that the five appearances of Adonai with Chametz in this pericope were understood by the rabbis to refer to yod heh vav -Heh being differentiated from the common plural form written with final patach. And of course, the one time that we have it in pausal form, we expect the, the patach to be lengthened to Chametz. On page 12, then, the five, uh, number five in the summary. In 19.1, the BHS text reads, and two of the angels came toward Sodom in the evening. The articular malachim, however, with construct shnei, surely gives the sense, and two of the angels came to Sodom in the evening, which in context would naturally be understood as being two of the three men mentioned in the opening of the narrative pericope in 18.2. This likewise would indicate that the third man who remained behind is pictured in the narrative as yod with whom Avraham conversed. Now, this left me with a big question. Like, why, why, why all the hubbub about this? My mind went to uh, uh, the church fathers. Well, before I do that, let me do the summary of the remarks on page 12. In general, these few remarks dealing with a number of verses in this pericope have once again reinforced that the text expects the reader to view yod heh as one of the three men who initially approached Abram's tent, and that the event introduced in the opening verse of Genesis 18, which states that yod heh vav -Heh appeared to Abraham, is explained and developed in the subsequent narrative in which Abraham engages in open dialogue with yod heh vav -Heh while the other two men, or angels, go to Sodom. Moreover, that the Masoretes have Avraham addressing yod heh vav -Heh as Adonai with Kamates gives ample evidence that the tradition they preserved in the text was that Avraham and yod heh vav -Heh met face to face, and it seems clear that the rabbinic authorities who, who are credited with authoring the Midrashim were familiar with the textual <coughs> traditions codified by the Masoretes. When the MT of Genesis 18 and 19 is compared with the general interpretation sent forth in the Midrashim we have surveyed, it becomes evident that one of the primary tenets of the rabbinic teaching is to offer an interpretation of this prikarbi which distances yod heh vav -Heh from the anthropomorphic descriptions and even more, which keeps yod heh vav -Heh from being viewed as corporeal. Consistent in the Midrashim is the view that yod heh vav -Heh remains completely distinct from the three men who arrive at Avram's tent, for yod heh vav -Heh appears as the Shekinah, not as one of the three men. And I just give this uh, quick... Uh, a definition of Shekinah given by Unterman, uh, and he makes it very clear that, in his opinion, the Shekinah has always been differentiated, not represented as a separate aspect of God or as being in any sense a part of the Godhead. 
The later notion is totally alien to the strict monotheism of rabbinic Judaism for which the unity of the divine essence is a basic premise. Now, I'm, I apologize. There are a few typos in this. I don't know if typos will remain, but I think they'll be gone in the world to come, I hope. Um, I should have put, if you turn to page uh, 13, I should have put this first. So I'll go to page 13, and then I'll come back to read the quote from uh, Bregman. Uh, and I'm starting with this paragraph that says, In Tanchkoma Kitise, or Kitisa. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda Bar Shalom describes how Moshe, uh, Moses asked the Holy One that the Mid Mishnah be written down, but the divine response was that in the future the Gentiles would translate the Torah and read it in Greek, and then would declare, We are Israel. And so the scales would be even. Thus, in uh, Tanchkoma, we read, The Holy One, blessed be he, said to the nations, You avere that you are my children. I cannot tell. Only they who possess my mysterion, the Greek term meaning mystery, are my children. And which are these? The Mishnah. Commenting on this passage, uh, Urbach writes, It is clear that this dictum explains the superiority of the oral Torah as an answer to the claims of Christianity following upon Paul's statement in Galatians concerning the church as the true heir of Israel, since it is the son of the free woman, while Israel, according to the flesh, is at most the son of the bondwoman. The fathers of the Christian church, from Justin to Augustine, claimed that the book of books is no longer the property and heritage of the Jews. Now, if we go back to the bottom of page 12, I want to give this remark from Mark Bregman. He has noted the influence of such polemics in the conclusion to his article on Mishnah as mystery, and he was, he's commenting about the text that we just read in Tanchuma. The foregoing attempt is, set, is to set a tradition attributed to Rabbi Yehuda Bar Shalom in its historical and ideological context has larger methodological implications for the study of rabbinic literature in general and the investigation of the Tanchuma Yelamadenu Midrashim in particular. We have here an example of an anti-Christian rabbinic tradition that seems... Uh, an anti-Christian rabbinic tradition that seems best understood in light of a patristic doctrine documented from the second half of the fourth century. Of course, reading that, I said to myself, is it possible that the polemic of the church fathers had some something to do with making this uh, tikkun? So, in the following pages, I have given you some examples, for instance, from Justin Martyr, Dialogue with Trifo. I'm not going to read all of these, but if you go to the next page, 14, in his Dialogue with Trifo, chapter uh, 56, it's, uh, it says, Moses, then, the blessed and faithful servant of God, declares that he who appeared to Abraham under the oak in Mamre is God, sent with the two angels in his company to judge Sodom by another who remains ever in the super-celestial places, invisible to all men, holding personal intercourse with none, whom we believe to be the maker and father of all things. Now, if you go to the bottom uh, of that quote, the last paragraph and about halfway through, he says, I asked Trifo, do you think that God appeared to Abraham under the oak in Mamre, as the scripture asserts? And he has said, assuredly. Was he one of the three, I asked, whom Abraham saw and whom the Holy Spirit of prophecy described as men? He said, no, but God appeared to him before the vision of the three. Then those three whom the scripture calls men were angels, two of them sent to destroy Sodom and one to announce the joyful tidings to Sarah that she would bear a son for which cause he was sent and having accomplished his errand went away. So it sounds to me like Justin knows something about the tradition 
of the, the rabbis that we found in the Midrashim. If you go to uh, uh, page 15, Irenaeus uh, chapter 7, 4, Therefore have the Jews departed from God in not receiving his word, but imagining that they could now know the Father apart by himself without the word, that is, without the Son, they being ignorant of that God who spake in human shape to Avraham. And again, middle of the uh, final paragraph of that quote, For if you had believed Moses, you would also have believed me, for he wrote of me, saying this, no doubt, because the Son of God is implanted everywhere throughout his writings at one time indeed, speaking with Avraham when about to eat with him. If you go to page 16, Clement of Alexandria notes that Abraham was stationed before the Lord, meaning he was reading that as what he considered to be the original text. Eusebius in book 1, first paragraph, but the Son of God, by no means neglectful of the reverence due to the Father, was appointed to teach the knowledge of the Father to them all. For instance, the Lord God, it is said, appeared as a common man to Avraham while he was sitting at the oak of Mamre. And he immediately falling down, although he saw a man with his eyes, nevertheless worshipped him as God and sacrificed to him as Lord and confessed that he was not ignorant of his identity when he uttered the words, Lord, the judge of all the earth, will you not execute righteous judgment? Down to Cyril of, of Yerushalayim, and you can see that uh, I'm trying to go by date, as at least suggested. Um, also, uh, up in Eusebius, in the second quote, he says, the word of God who appeared to him. Now Cyril... At the bottom of that quote, what strange thing do we announce in saying that God was made man when you yourselves say that Abraham received the Lord as a guest? The Lord who ate with Abraham ate also with us. Hillary says in the first quote, if any man says that the son did not appear to Abraham, but the unborn God or a part of him, let him be anathema. So this becomes what I was surprised to see regularly throughout the church fathers, they go to Genesis 18, our text, as proof of their Christian view of, of the Incarnation and of the Trinity. Jerome on page 17. For one who had gone so, at the, the last uh, sentence, for one who has gone so far astray as to live in Gomorrah could not, at, 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 not all at once reach the noon land where Avraham, the friend of God, entertained God and his angels. And Leo I, and uh, uh, I'll just read the first part here. No doubt the Almighty Son of God could have appeared for the purpose of teaching and justifying men in exactly the same way that he appeared both to the patriarchs and prophets in the semblance of flesh. For instance, when he engaged in a struggle and entered into conversation with Jacob, or when he refused not hospitable entertainment and even partook of the food set before him, which is, of course, Genesis 18. And he says, the word became flesh. So, my summary. Am I on time? Yes. Okay. Baruch <clears throat> Hashem. Summary and conclusion. It is clear that during the period of the 2nd through the 5th centuries, the polemical use of Genesis 18 through 19, containing as it does the appearance of yod heh to Avraham, was used as one of the standard arguments by the Church Fathers to prove the fundamental Christian doctrine of God's incarnation in Christ and thus to substantiate the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The debates over these issues, which ensued within the Christian Church itself, 
required the church fathers to give all that much more attention to providing theological arguments for what would eventually be canonized as doctrine by the church councils. Further, while scholars debate over the intended audience of Justin's dialogue uh, with Trifo, it seems warranted to allow the very real possibility that it was written both to Christians, whether Gentiles or Jews, as well as to evangelize Jews with the Christian message. Having given examples from the dialogue, which would indicate an approach to Jewish and Gentile Christians as well as to non-Christian Jews, Wilson notes, if we are guided by these passages and by the general content of the dialogue, which is relevant to both situations, it is difficult to differentiate between the aim of shoring up Christian convictions in the face of Jewish propaganda and confronting the Jews with the Christian message with a view to conversion. That Trifo is politely non-committal at the end may point to the former rather than the latter purpose, even if it does not signal that all attempts to convert the Jews will inevitably be in vain. Given the history of the conflict between the emerging rabbinic Judaism and Christianities, I should have made it in plural perhaps, after 70 CE, it seems very probable that the use of Genesis 18 through 19 by the church fathers in the following centuries could have evoked a rabbinic response aimed not only to defeat the Christian interpretation and application of Genesis 18 through 19 as proof of God incarnate, but even more importantly, to give the synagogue communities a ready answer when confronted by Christians. The extant textual evidence strongly suggests that the Tikkun Sofrim in Genesis 18.22 is not based upon a historical variant in the text itself, but was formulated in order to support a midrashic interpretation of the text. McCarthy, after concluding the Tikkun Sofrim of Genesis 18.22, was not text-based, but was the result of rabbinic midrash, offers this scenario to suggest what may have been the impetus for constructing the Tikkun in this text. And I'll just paraphrase what she says that there was a mid midrash that required this you know, because it talks about the conde condescension of yod heh vav -He st uh, standing before the sitting Abraham. When, however, one considers that Genesis 18 through 19 became a standard text used by the church fathers of the early centuries to substantiate the Christian doctrine of an incarnate God, one has to wonder if this tikkun sofrim was initially constructed as a necessary measure to counter the Christian polemic based on this text and that the Midrashic teaching regarding the condescension of the Lord was secondary. As the narrative of Genesis 18 unfolds, the opening verse functions as a general introduction to the events that subsequently take place in the narrative. Thus, the opening line of the pericope, and yod heh appeared to him at the Oaks of Mamre, announces the activity of yod heh both in his ongoing faithfulness to fulfill his covenant promise to Avraham and to deal with the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is exceedingly grave. The faithfulness of yod heh to the covenant he has made with Avraham is highlighted when the birth of the promised son is announced in verse 14. The narrative section dealing with the retribution meted out to Sodom and Gomorrah begins in verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked toward, uh, down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The straightforward reading of the text is that all three men who initially approached Abraham's tent are walking toward Sodom, accompanied by Abraham. The one-sided dialogue that occurs next, however, would seem to be between yod heh and the other two men. For yod heh speaks in regard to Abraham, but he is obviously not speaking directly to him. He says, should, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since in him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed? He's not talking to Abraham, he's talking about Abraham to those who accompany him. Next, in verse 22, we read, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham continued standing before yod heh 
When read in light of 19.1, which gives the further detail that only two of the three men or angels initially came to Sodom, the only conclusion one would reach with the text as it stands is that the third man is Yodhe who remained with Abraham and came to Sodom only after finishing the conversation with Abraham in verses 23-32. And this is confirmed in verse 33, and Yodhe departed when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Understanding the narrative in the sense that Abraham accompanied all three men as they walked toward Sodom, but then only two of the three continued toward Sodom, leaves the obvious impression that the third man is Yodhe Vavhe, as the ensuing dialogue makes clear. And of course, this is the, the dialogue for, for 50 minus 5, you know, will you destroy the city, and so forth and so on. Uh, Moreover, the final clause, while Abraham continued standing before Yodhe it describes Yodhe as stationary and corporeal, which speaks, this is in 1822, which speaks against the Midrashim, which describe Yodhe as the Shkinah. But the Shkinah is numinous, in no way a corporeal, and thus omnipresent, not constrained to physicality, but appearing to Abraham wherever he would go. So, what I'm suggesting is that they, is that the, the rabbi said, no, it originally read yod heh remained standing before Avraham. That is, wherever ever Abraham went, there was, the, there was the Shekinah. So they needed to change that. Then say, uh, we changed it to, and Abraham remained standing before yod heh In conclusion, what I am suggesting then is the possibility that the Tikkun Sofrim on 1822 was developed by the rabbis as a theological necessity in order to strengthen the Midrashic interpretation that yod heh appeared to Abraham not as a man, but as the Shekinah, and not as one of the three men who came to Avram's tent. As such, the Shekinah, being numinous and having no corporeal form, would not, could not be viewed as constrained to a given physical location, but rather is omnipresent, appearing to Abraham wherever he might be. To posit an original text to have been, and yod heh continued standing before Avram, allows the Midrashic explanation that all three men had left Avraham, and only Shekinah remained standing before him, thus undermining the Christian use of the text to prove that yod heh had come to Avraham as a man. Not, and, uh, the Christian use of the text to prove that yod heh had come to Avraham as a man, an event which from the Christian viewpoint substantiated both a divine incarnation as well as a hypostasis within the Godhead. And I have to make one just last comment. Uh, I, I'm chagrined because in the past, uh, thankfully distant past, uh, I, I took the Tikkun Sofrim as all textual, as we see it in the apparatus of, of BHS. It, you know, the apparatus, the textual apparatus has the Tikkun noted there as though it's a textual issue. And uh, after doing this and reading McCarthy, I'm convinced that we need to be more uh, careful uh, as to the, the Tikkuni Sofrim, as to whether they are textual. Now, there's two or three that seem clearly that they are, but the others may have been uh, uh, put forward as uh, necessary for Midrashic purposes. Okay, uh, questions or comments, or please don't throw anything. We've got time if somebody wants to suggest a Tikkun. No. Okay, thank you. Next, we have uh, Rob Vanhoff presenting a paper in the same section, the Mazor section, and he is obviously going to tell you some technical terms that he uses and what they mean and what his paper was about. 
this is a uh, rather technical paper, uh, so it is not for the faint of heart. Rob, what's your paper about? Thanks, Caleb. Uh, my paper, too, like Tim's, is was for the Masora section. So the Masora section focuses on the marginal notes and accumulated knowledge uh, by the Middle Ages that the scribes had recorded in their effort to preserve the letters of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. And so it, it, the Masora covers things uh, such as difficulties in the text where the scribes uh, encounter a word that might, like for example, need a, an olive with, but doesn't have the olive. And so the Masora has, will have a guard to say, copy it as, as you see it here, but you're gonna read it differently. You're gonna read it as if it's a different word. And that's called a kari. We call that kari and kativ. And what my paper does is gets into how Hebrew Bible scholars today learn about the Masora and how we learn about this category of, of scribal knowledge called kari and kativ. And anybody who's taken uh, Tim's introduction to the Masora class will be familiar with those terms. Uh, but I make an argument that the, the Masorites themselves who were copying these texts in the 8th, 9th, and 10th century, our oldest Hebrew Bible manuscripts that are fully vocalized, um, that they didn't use that terminology in the same way that educators today, over the last couple hundred years, have used when teaching about the Masorah. And so it's, it's a classical example of anachronism, just like in the first century, Paul uses the word Judaismos, Judaism, but uh, he means it in a very specific a group of Jews and, and their way of life. But today we use the same word, Judaism, and we think of this huge umbrella covering all sorts of variation. And so in the same way, I'm trying to point out a difference in terminology between an earlier time and a later time. And I think the implications is for those who are teaching, I think it's good for us to try to use the terminology from the time of the text we're studying to the best of our ability, rather than importing new labels and language. And so I do that with the Masora, uh, and I, the reception kind of indicates to me that I was successful in, in doing that. So here is Rob Van Hoff giving his uh, paper at the 2016 San Antonio Society of Biblical Literature. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for the opportunity, uh, David, to present another paper this year. Um, passive or imperative? So. Um, I suppose most Hebrew Bible scholars are trained from the start to think of when they see this word as a passive participle. And um, we kind of take that for granted. Um, it is read or it, it is to be read, maybe more uh, paraphrastically. Um, and we are trained to think of this in contrast with its partner, Kativ, which of course is a, a passive participle, what is written. And many voices in Masora studies for the Hebrew Bible student that they would look to are going to uh, echo this definition. And today I want to challenge this. I, uh, three things I would like to do today is uh, demonstrate that the word kare, kare, however we're going to set aside vocalization, this word spelled kufresh yod uh, was not always understood this way by the Masoretes. That is, as, not always as a passive participle. Two, I want to expose what I believe is an inconsistency and perhaps even a confusion among modern scholarly treatments of 
of this topic. And then three, suggest an alternative way to understand certain Masoretic notes, both in uh, the Masoretic Ketana and the Gedola, that employ the words uh, Ketiv or Ketav and Kufreshiod, along with their various abbreviations. Um, after an initial introduction, this paper will have three parts corresponding to the parts on your handout. Uh, but first, before we get to the handout, um, well, here's, here's, a, here's a text I want to kind of uh, prime the pump with here. This is from Abahia ben Asher, who was a, who was a kind of an early uh, uh, Kabbalist, lived in the 13th century, 14th, early 14th century, in his commentary on Mishnah Avot 1-1, Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai, etc., he writes, Afilu kariv ketiv ne'amar l'moshe b'sinai, or b'sinai. And you'll notice here, ne'amar is in the singular. So here we have uh, just a data point where uh, a rabbi in this, in this time frame, 13th, early 14th century, has a conception of kariv ketiv as some sort of unit. And what I'm going to argue today and hope to demonstrate is that this is a new this is a new thing in the, somewhere by the 13th century. Um, I know we have, two, we have doctors, Minot and Crawford here today. This is just one example of, of the, uh, the education that a Hebrew Bible student would encounter. And this is from the Masora of the VHS, pages, an excerpt from page 40 and from 41. Kari Wilakativ, words read but not written, Nedarim 37b, 38a, also mentions seven passages where a word is to be read, although it is not written in the text, and, and uh, uh, we have the, the shorthand here. Um, but we're taught, the student is taught, that these are abbreviations of an Aramaic pe'il participle. Uh, and then we see on the next page, Kare uh, Wilakativ, the opposite, flipping the, the, the verbs. Uh, uh, read but not written. Um, oh wait, I, that's my, I made a typo. I'm sorry, those are both the same. Uh, anyway, the point, my, my second slide, or my second item here is, is a duplicate. It was supposed to be the other, my mistake. But nevertheless, the point is that in a, uh, an education context, we're gonna be trained to think of Kufratioed as a passive participle. Here's an excerpt from the Anchor Bible Dictionary from uh, Morrow, uh, pages 25 and 27. He says the words kativ and kare are Aramaic pe'il uh, participles, meaning what is written and what is read, respectively. The traditional pronunciation of the word kare as kare arose by analogy with the vocalization of the word kativ. The term kare has been interpreted both as an imperative form and as a participle, passive participle. Its identity as a passive participle can be demonstrated or determined, however, by analogy with the use of the term kativ in Masoretic notes of the type kativin, kativin probably, walak uh, kariin. And notice that he's, he's got a yod here uh, indicating the, the passive. Uh, again, Morrow writes, uh, the testimony or testimony to the oldest independent list of Kareketiv variants is found in again Nedarim 37b of the Bavli, and he, he translates for us. Rabbi Isaac said the pronunciation of the scribes, the omissions of the scribes, 
words read which are not written in the text, words written in the text but not read, are all a law of Moses from Sinai. Uh, the text continues with examples of each of these classes. Rabbi Isaac belonged to the third generation of Amorim and taught in Babylon toward the close of the third century CE. So Morrow, uh, looking at a list of the generations of Amoraim, places, and I imagine uh, the, his reader here would take this site, this uh, Baraita from the Bavli and imagine that this originated, uh, this wording originated back in the third century. Um, Israel Yavin identifies, I just want to set the table here before we dive into our handout, uh, three, what he calls the earliest categories of Kativ. This is in his introduction to Tiberian Misorah. The first is the perpetual Kareh. So we have the Tetragrammaton, we have uh, Jerusalem, as we know, vocalized as a dual Yerushalayim, and so on and so forth. Uh, those are uh, unmarked in the Misorah in terms of any list. But the, uh, the numbers two and three of these earliest categories that Yavin identifies are what I'm going to look at today. The first, uh, Yavin identifies as Karivala Kativ, Kativala Kare. And here we have an example from the Aleppo Codex at Ruth 317. Uh, we have uh, Ki Amar, and then we, have, we see the circle here pointing to Elite, to me. And then we have this, this note here, Karivala Kativ, according to what Yavin. Uh, this is to be read, but it is not written. Uh, and then, so that's one of the earliest. The third earliest that Givin identifies is what he calls euphemisms. Um, here's another example from the Aleppo Codex. Um, we have the circle over Ophelim, and it's Uvat Tehorim, is uh, according to the vowels of the text, of course, with these consonants. And then we just have this word, Kufreshiod. Uh, so in turn, I want to take uh, each of these and look at them. But first, uh, we're going to go to our first item on the handout, which is uh, a survey of the use of this word, kufreishiod. So just this inflection, not any um, other uh, inflections or verbal forms from that root. And uh, just to, for the sake of time, uh, there, there is one at Qumran, that is identified by Ed Cook, and it's clearly an imperative. Uh, call for me, my son. Uh, uh, oh, I don't have, I think I've got an old. Tim, would you, would you bring me one? I think I have an old. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's small type, isn't it? I tried to cram it onto two. Uh, my son, summon to me the angels. That's the, that's the translation that Cook provides in his Dictionary of Qumran Aramaic. It's the only time that I could find uh, where we have this, this word in Qumran. Not that it, it gets into the Masorah, but just, just for fun, it's there. In the Targumim, it appears uh, as a translation of a Hebrew imperative. Um, the Isaiah 29 is a nice verse. It yehev sifra de la yada sifra lememar kari kandin, which is, so read this, please from the Hebrew, which I have there in the brackets. So uh, read, we have it in Hosea as well. Um, and there's other examples in the Targum. Uh, here's uh, several examples from the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, granted, the difficulties with our Talmud quotes is access to early manuscripts, for, for me, in terms of the Yerushalmi. Uh, 
Um, so I did the best I could plugging through the online uh, leading manuscripts. Um, but if, if, just if you skim through these, we'll see Kufresh Yod, by context, is used as an imperative. Now some of them, like the Yerushalmi Sanhedrin 20b, the first one could be argued as a participle maybe, at, you know, participle, but uh, Sokolov in his uh, Dictionary of Jewish-Palestinian Aramaic actually tags this as an imperative, singular. Um, and you go down, um, these basically deal with uh, cues or instructions to, to cite the text of scripture. Um, for example, the Sanhedrin 7.7, uh, how do we know that uh, the one upon whom it is committed is also covered by the law? And it cites Leviticus 18.22, but then it says, read it, karive, you shall, and then it changes the form to nifal, tishachev, lo tichashev. So karive, lo tichashev. So it's a revocalization of the scripture being prompted by the imperative kari. And that's, that's what's happening with these uh, a, a fun one that is believed to be of Palestinian origin is the Genesis Rabbah 3911, where it says, be a blessing, the Lord says to Abram. And it says, a, read a pool. Just as a pool uh, purifies the unclean, so too you bring near those who are far and purify them for their father who is in heaven. So again, we have the imperative kufratio kuri, uh, followed by an alternative vocalization, sometimes midrashic, uh, sometimes halakhic. Uh, we look to the bavli, and we see here's some examples of the same thing: um, the pesachim 118a, lotisa shemashava. Do not lift up a false report. But then it says karive, read it. And then this is difficult, lo tashi, maybe, from nun shin, olive. Do not deceive. Do not cause someone to go astray. Um, but that's it. it. As far as I could see in all these, I couldn't find one example where kufresh yod could be clearly demonstrated by context to be a passive participle. And then I, I looked at Rashi, just to throw something in that was a little later. And Rashi follows suit with the Talmud. Um, he quotes a couple things that uh, are, would have been accessible to him in the Midrash um, that show like maybe he had a little knowledge of Masora, but he uses Karive quite a bit that you see here. And um, one other point that I don't didn't fit on the, the, the uh, out, outline here is that in the Bavli and in Rashi, when there's a contrast between Kativ, it is written, and then some form of the root kufresh yod, the bavli, and then Rashi follows suit. It's in the active karinan, kativ x karinan y. We read. So bavli does that. There's no examples in the bavli, in other words, of kativ blank and kari something else. The bavli shifts the voice to an active uh, we present tense. Okay, so that, the, the point with this first page then is just, a, it was just a scouring to the best of my resources, of course I didn't get everything here, to just see, are there, do we have any traction with Kufresh Yod 
being understood and used in any significant way with the reading of scripture as a passive participle? And my answer is no. I can't find any. Even up to 11th century. At least there's a trajectory there. Okay, so now we're going to move on here to part two. So this will get us into page two, or the, the second page of our uh, handout here. Uh, and I want so this is going to take us back to Bavli Nedarim 37a and its Masoretic parallels. Um, back to Morrow's translation, Rabbi Isaac said the pronunciation of the scribes, etc. We're interested in this last bit. Words read, which are not written in the text, words written in the text but not read, are a law of Moses from Sinai, which is Halakha le Moshe Misinai, which uh, uh, Christine Hayes wrote a, a really thorough essay on this years ago. Um, basically scouring through the Mishnah, the Tosefta, Yerushalmi, and the Bavli, where this trope, Halakha uh, Lamoshi Misinai, is used, and uh, basically comes to the point uh, that in, by the time of the Bavli, this uh, means it's, an, it's a non-scriptural tradition that, is, that it can't be changed, and it has equal authority. This is the idea of how it's operating in the minds of the, of the sages of the Gemara. Uh, so I have here a, a, a snapshot taken from the Vilna edition, and you'll see here, so that the citation that Maro translates for us starts here, Amar Rabbi Yitzha, right, Mikra Sofrim, Itur Sofrim, and then we have this phrase, Krinan Vela Ktivan, or Ktivin, if this is a plural, um, and then the opposite, Halakala Moshe Misinai. Um, and then we have 14th century Spanish commentator, the Ron, who's uh, uh, Nassim ben Reuven, and notice what he says here. Now, this is the Vilna printing. So the Vilna provides us with the same text. But notice uh, what uh, the Ron says. He says, Tevot hanikraot velo niktavot. Words that are nifal, nifal participle. Nikraot velo niktavot, and then the opposite. So he uses, again, he's thinking of this text. Now, the, the, the Dilma edition doesn't exist until 1800. But we have here a, a data point, again, of a 14th century Spanish uh, rabbi who is understanding this uh, baraita from the Bavli that Masora studies depends on so much as clearly as a passive participle. What I'm going to suggest, just like with the quote from Bachia ben Asher, who lived roughly contemporaneously, um, this was an innovation. Um, and came, who came to my rescue while I was um, researching this, wondering if I even had an idea at all, is uh, Michael Sokoloff's Dictionary of Babylonian Jewish Aramaic, Jewish Babylonian Aramaic, pardon me, and notice what Dr. Sokoloff gives. So this is under Kufratio, the entry. Notice how he cites it. He cites it not as a passive, but katvin, active participle. And notice how he translates. Words which are read and not written. Then he gives us his own kativ. <laughs> Literally, they read and do not write in scripture, and which are written and not read. Literally, they write and do not read. Nedarim 37b. And then he gives, just, I left this on as an example, what we were talking about, how the Bavli does interact with talking about Kativ and using Kufresh Yod. Um, he gives an example here. Kativ ki uh, yutain, I guess, but krinan ki yutan. 
So we have kativ and a, a word based on kari, but it's in an active participle with the, with the uh, collective suffix there, the we. So once I saw that in uh, Sokolov's dictionary, I thought, okay, I, I think there's something here. Because we have basically two authorities now disagreeing. We have um, the Ron from 14th century Spain reading it as passive participles, tevot hanikraot, velonik tevot, etc. And then we have uh, Michael Sokolov uh, several hundred years later saying, no, literally, it's katvin, which is an active participle. Okay, what we're going to do now is go and look at the manuscript tradition that is behind, I'm going to go chronologically through manuscripts, even though the Bavli is, we're going to suggest, is older than our, than our oldest uh, Masora manuscripts, I'm going on a timeline of manuscript dates. Okay, so I'm going to put Masora before the Bavli. Do you see why? Because our, oh, I'm going just by dates of manuscripts. And from the Cairo Codex here, 895, uh, roughly the year. Notice we have, this is the upper uh, Masora Gedola at Judges 2013. It's, sorry, this was the best resolution I could get. <laughs> but notice the note here. 10 Kari with a dot, the La Kat with a dot. Sorry, that's it's a holum. Uh, that's my best I could do. The dots are actually right above the last letter. I was unable to repl replicate that. Then the upper Masorga Dalat, Jeremiah 38, 16. Notice we have the list first. Then there's some smudge here. I don't know what it is. But then it says, Eileen, these are eight Katvalakar with the dots. So this is our uh, Cairo Codex. Here's a couple more from the Cairo Codex. Left margin. This is really interesting to me. A left margin note at Jeremiah 39, 12. Um, eight Melin Katvalakar. It's telling the reader, it's, it's evoking in the reader the memory of the list. It's not an instruction. And then finally, and thanks to David for emailing me a scan of this, because this one was totally illegible to me. So this is uh, from uh, Castro's um, transcription of this uh, Masora at the bottom of 50, Jeremiah 51.3. or katav and then and there are signs. And so here's the, the list again. So this is all late 9th century Cairo Codex. Uh, we don't have any Talmud manuscripts of the Bavli this old. So that's why we're starting with the Masora and coming forward. The Petrograd Codex, here's, here's where I was really thought uh, this was worthwhile, was notice here's a, a 10th century uh, Codex. And notice at Jeremiah 39.12, it's hard to read here, but it's much clearer. I, I type it here. Hadmin, here is one of eight milim de katvin velakar with the dot. And notice we have the active participle. Uh, but what I thought was really gold was the Ezekiel 48 at the bottom. We have, we have the full name of the list. Eight of, or one of eight milim de katvin velakarin. I didn't type the whole thing there, so that just takes us to here. So twice, in the, and this is the only time I know of in the Petrograd that we have uh, this in the Masora Gedola. Aleppo Codex, we're just moving forward in time chrono chronologically. Um, in, in terms of Masora Gedola, at the bottom of Judges 
2013, we have a, a list. Ten, notice Kufri Shiod Vala Ketav, not Ketiv, Ketav. And then Leningrad Codex at the top, Masorga uh, Dolat, Ruth 3.5. Aileen, Karin, notice no Yod, or I'm sorry, no Vav here, no Holom. Aileen, Karin, Vala Katvin. We have the active participle again. So all these manuscripts testify to active participles, which support. Now, I didn't know if Sokolov uh, knew this or not, but he certainly um, was right on. So how so? Well, if we quickly look through the, the manuscript tradition, uh, this is from the Saul Lieberman database. It's all I have in terms of Bavli manuscripts. Uh, the Munich of this passage of Nedarim, Katvin, Katvin. And then uh, we have the list sandwiched by the title. And even the Munich, though, gets to a shorter version. Um, again, I, because we're going chronologically, the Munich is uh, mid-14th century. I, I put uh, the Ron in here again. Uh, the Vatican, which is late 14th century. Katvin, Katvin, active participle, active participle. And then, strangely, though, where it's talking about the Halakala Moshe Messina, it has a yod here. But when it sandwiches the list, I'm kind of fast-forwarding through this because I know my time's short. But in the, in the Bavli, the list is sandwiched by the title. Title, list, title, and then it gives the title for the flip, list, title again. Um, notice the, the Ginsberg Talmud, I, I wasn't able to find a, a date on this. Um, but notice, clearly passive, Ktivin, Ktivin. The Venice, 16th century, Katvin, Katvin, Katvin. Active, 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 but then look at the Vilna printing. Pass it, pass it, pass it. So what I'm suggesting is there's a drift that's happening by the 14th century of the passive, uh, of, pardon me, of the either imperative Kari, read, or Kari used as a shorthand for they read, according to Sokolov's translation. But by proximity to the passive participle Kativ, it's starting to be heard as a passive. And when, as for students of Masora, you get a lot of mileage thinking of it as a passive participle. So that, that's, it's not a bad thing, but it is not, it, it, it's not emic. It's not an emic concept to the Masora texts themselves. It's from a later stage of interpreters of the Masora tradition that are imposing the passive participle Kari on the world of the Masorites. Okay, if we continue, this is just the kind of the development over time here, uh, what we've gone through. All these, we have a tradition of the active clearly coming in. If we look at Masechet Sofrim and, and Akla Va'akla, there's a mix. Sometimes you see it the active participle, sometimes a passive, sometimes shorthand, and that's something that was beyond my paper today. But in terms of the 20th century, all these, uh, these are different resources. I didn't, oh yeah, I have Yevin on here, Dotan, um, Alexander Sperber, Ginsburg uh, are all teaching according to this paradigm. It's Sokolov, in, in terms of my ability to see, is the only one to, to affirm this. And I, I don't know how much uh, Michael Sokolov is aware if he's done this work, and that's why he made the choice he did. Um, I just have maybe a little bit of time to, to talk about the euphemisms, which was a secondary uh, topic. Point being, all our 
for the, that's his uh, Bavli Megillah 25b, it's also an active. Even though it's passive, it's usually translated passive. Um, when it's written in the text, we, well, we substitute. But it's Korin Otan. We read the Shevach. So I looked at all the Bavli manuscripts. The, we have a little bit of variation with the spelling of Korin, but you always have an active participle, you always have an object. Um, and then in Masechet Sofrim from the Higger edition, um, this is just uh, uh, 9 8. There's six times where he has Vikari in his, edit, uh, his edition. But if you look at his, um, his apparatus, his notes, the manuscripts he draws from have, have all these variations. Korin, active participle, Korin with an olive, Korinan, like we saw in the Bavli, we read. Um, there's even one that begins, Elu Dvarim Shek Kutvin. So, where, where does all this go? I want to suggest that back to our two examples here, from the, if we just time travel back to the 10th century, and we ask the, uh, the Masora scholars what this note is, my argument is that this is a shorthand for the name of the list. This, that's all this is. This is not Kari Velakativ. This is a shorthand for what we saw back in the Cairo Codex here. It's a shorthand for a reference to the list that probably was already memorized. And of course, we know the list isn't exactly the same every time. It's just like Mishnaic lists. It's, there's a list that kind of changes shape, but they have a title for the list. And um, I want to suggest, so there, there's one use of kufresh yod that is not passive. I want to suggest that's a shorthand for the plural active participle. And then with the euphemisms, I would suggest that this is closer to an active, it would be better to read this as an active participle. Read, read. Read, because just like we saw with the traditions there in section one, we have a, a strong history in Jewish Aramaic of using the active participle to prompt the reader to revocalize the scriptural text using this formula. So basically to recap, I would suggest that of these two, of what Yevin identifies as the earliest strata of Karei Kativ, it is inappropriate to use Karei defined as an act, or as a, uh, as a pe'il uh, participle, as a passive participle but rather a different kind of shorthand, and this might be part of a larger study of kind of seeing strata, because even Yevin says it's not until after, way after the Talmudic times that the Kare Kativ kind of comes into its full. Thank you. Much. I think you made a very good case that the Ketiv uh, may not be passive as active, but I wonder why you titled your paper Passive or Imperative. Oh, yeah. Thank you, David. The, uh, the reason why is because <laughs> I originally submitted the, the once I submitted the paper, I learned a whole bunch of new stuff, and I was trying to, I, I kind of kept the paper. I think they uh, kept the title when I didn't have to, maybe, in terms of this presentation. My first, Robert Gordas, in as it the biblical text in the making or something, he argues that it's an active, to read it as an active. But his, his rational rationale is kind of what I talked about last year, the altikra ele. He took the Bavli's and the Midrashim's use of don't read blank, but this, 
um, as a kind of genre of uh, imperative that the Cree would fit with. The, what that didn't solve for me is the law. Because when you have Ketav Vela Kari, you wouldn't have it be a, it can't be a, uh, an imperative with La in front of it. Right? You can't have a negative uh, command, would not be La Kari. It would be Alti Kari. So, um, and I did find um, uh, Eliyahu Halevi in his uh, Masoret HaMasoret. He uses the, the what's it, the Ikaved, where's the Ikaved, the Ikavida. He says, he says, Altikru, uh, he's, this is what, is it Haggai, or how, I'm trying to remember, uh, where there's a, there's a scribal Kari. But he's, he's taken back to where the prophet actually tells the people, and he says, Altikru, don't you all read the uh, Ikaved, Ela Ve'akivda, as if there was a hey at the end. And so he, uh, there is this tradition of thinking back, and that's what 15th century, of thinking of the Kari as an imperative and the Altikra Ela that we see in the Midrashim and in the Bavli as of the same kind of genre, prompting a, a, maybe an alternative performance of the scripture. So, um, thanks. Okay, thank